0: All right, welcome to episode 80 of seize the moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. We have Ashley Borer. She's the new APA public philosophy editor. Uh, She's an academic activist and public intellectual. She's assistant professor at the University of Notre Dame, and previously held a postdoctoral position at Hamilton College. Her research in the fields of philosophy, critical race studies, decolonial theory, intersectional feminism and Marxism explores the intersections of capitalism, colonialism, racism, and heterosexism. Welcome, Ashley.
1: Thanks.
2: And so obviously your resume is incredibly impressive. So um, just to be a little bit vague here, but I think we want to touch as much of this as possible. Um, My first question is going to be, can you tell us a little bit about your academic background and in particular your recent book?
1: Mm. Mm, Yeah. Uh, So I have a PhD in philosophy um, and really studied a lot of what's called continental philosophy coming out of the French and German traditions primarily. Um, And during the course of my doctoral work, I started getting really interested in feminism and critical race studies, and also in Latin American um, philosophy, particularly Latin American political philosophy. Um, And I've always been really interested in questions about politics and like the relationship between um, structures of domination and how we fight them. So most of my work centers on trying to untangle some of the various questions, uh, about that relationship. Um, so my, my, my book, uh, Marxism and Intersectionality, uh, which you all, you know, readers can get at Columbia University Press if they like, um, is really about, thinking through the relationship between what I find to be two of the most compelling theories about how to understand um, how messed up the world is. And that's Marxism on the one hand and intersectionality on the other. Um, And really what the book looks at is how both in in the academic realm and in the activist realm, there's a lot of animosity between these two um, camps maybe, or, or traditions as I like to call them. Um, but really, I think a lot of that animosity is misplaced and that there are ways to bring these two ways of thinking about changing the world closer together. And that I think we would be better off if we did that.
0: Yeah. Oh, what's intersectionalism? I actually don't know. Marxism I'm, I'm, I'm aware of, but- uh, Good question.
1: Yeah, Yeah, good question. So there's a whole chapter in the book about this that like goes through like, you know, what, what it means exactly to do intersectionality. But if I were to break it down really into its like core commitment, I would say that intersectionality is about seeing the ways that many axes of identity or domination. So things like racism, sexism, heteropatriarchy, ableism are not separate from one another, but are actually totally intermeshed and intertwined. Um and so part of what intersectionality is trying to do is to get us to not think like oh you can just solve racism as a problem totally on its own without thinking about gender or sexuality or class actually in order to solve all these problems fully you need to solve them together
2: mm-hmm. Interesting, but it's not, but just from my understanding, you're not saying kind of like what we a lot of times hear from, um, let's say, dem socialists when they're saying, like, oh, if we solve the class problem automatically, we're kind of negating or eliminating the racial issues and the sexist issues. What you're just saying is that, no, 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 all of these issues together are just equally important and they need to be solved separately. It's not saying that if we solve one, then automatically the others are done.
1: Exactly. So this is like one of the big arguments between a certain kind of Marxist, not all Marxists, hashtag not all Marxists, believe this, but some some Marxists have this argument that if you solve the problem of capitalism, if you overcome, you know, class um, antagonism, then magically, right, like racism and sexism will melt, melt away. Um, Mm -hmm. And intersectionality is really one of the ways that I think it helpfully pushes Marxism is to really doubt that that that's real. Um, There's actually a great film that came out in the 80s uh, called Born in Flames that Mm -hmm. is specifically about this. Um, It's like a kind of sci-fi film that focuses on queer Black women that looks at like you know, the communist revolution has happened and mm-hmm. yet racism and sexism have not magically melted away. Right. Uh, and I think really as a theory, intersectionality is trying to respond to, you know, why why we shouldn't expect for racism and sexism to just like magically float away when we-
2: Right, and, yeah, yeah, and then, I mean, so not to get into this, I guess, too much because I mean, that's not really the point, but so we're both Russian. And so I was born and actually in the USSR And so, a lot of times when people talk about, like, you know, kind of what communist ideology is, right? The idea is, well, like, you know, kind of Russia was, you know, sort of this brotherhood, right? And in some sense, that was true, but it's only because it was full of a lot of white folks. So, unfortunately, and look, I hate to bring this up, but it's also true. And I think it's worth noting and discussing. A lot of Russian people are racist. It just, it is what it is. I mean, that's just what I've seen in our communities. And that's just how it is, right? And so, I mean, obviously, they don't like, you know, for us to bring it up. But again, that's just, these are the facts of reality. And so, the notion there is, is that well if we um if we somehow you know challenge the class system then all of a sudden you know racism isn't going to exist that never really made any sense to me because if we're thinking about racism and we're thinking about it as an issue you can easily have a brotherhood of people who are just you know white dudes right and you kind of see that in the founding fathers in american ideology i mean it was just a bunch of white dudes who said we were created equal but like here are all of these other people who don't count there so is that something wow. that uh, when you focus on when you focus on that idea in your book um i guess The question there is, how did sort of Marx understand that? How did Marx understand the difference between sort of classes, divides, and then racism and sexism? If he did, if he sort of spoke about it, and how did he kind of see the connections between all of them?
1: Yeah, he did. Um, He actually wrote quite extensively about, um, I wouldn't say he wrote about race or gender, because those are pretty big concepts, but he certainly wrote specifically about the differential Um, relationship of Black people to capitalism, of women to capitalism, of the way that slavery was a system of exploitation, of the way that the colonization of the Americas was, you know, specifically invented in order to propel forward um, capitalist accumulation. He wrote a lot about the specific exploitation of not only women, but also children inside industrial capitalism. And so, Marx was quite attentive to the way that um, that exploitation is set up in a variety of ways that is differentiated along um, not just class lines, but also like intra-class divisions, uh, gender, race, age. Um, And he also was very committed to the idea that liberation was not possible for anyone without the liberation of all people. So he's very, very famously said, you know, um, like labor and white skin cannot be free as long as labor and black skin is branded, right? So you can't have a liberated white working class as long as there is still racialized slavery. Um, yeah, So so Marx was attentive to this. I think what he said, while good and puts us on the right path, is like not quite enough to deal with the complexity. Uh, of the relationship between race, gender, sexuality, ability, and capitalism. But certainly he talked about it. Certainly he wrote about it. There are some really good books that I can recommend about Marx's like own thinking about some of these questions.
0: I, I was just wondering, uh, this is probably a really dumb question, but it has <laughs> to be asked. Why do you think uh, Marx has such a bad rep? For example, when somebody, if somebody utters Marxism, let's say in the news media, it just, mm. I don't know, images, Russia, you just think of communism, you think bad, you can't, you know- Gulag, the,
2: yeah, Gulag, Stalin. Gulag, the right.
0: yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, Solzhenitsyn, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so uh, these things sort of just come to mind, but um, why do you think that is? And maybe what, it, what could we maybe do to sort of look at Marxism the right way? Even though you have highlighted the things that he wrote about, which were uh, the good things, yeah.
1: Yeah, I I mean, I think there are sort of two two reasons why this happens and they're kind of connected. Mm -hmm. Um, The first reason is that I think a lot of terrible things have happened under the name of communism or under the name of socialism. Anyone who like works with Marx's texts or who is really committed to reading in the Marxist tradition knows that gulags have nothing to do with communism or socialism in the way that Marx envisioned them. Um, and the way that communists envision them now. Um, but certainly like the fact that people who called themselves communists and thought about their own projects using those, that term then kind of sours the taste maybe of, of of Marxism, communism, socialism in the minds of people who rightly are scared of, of certain kinds of atrocities. Yeah. Um, but related to that is also that the people who control the media right? The, the ruling class, the people who write our textbooks, the people who own, um, you know, news media are precisely the kind of people who have everything to lose by democratizing our economy, right? Like the super, super wealthy, the top, not just like the top 1%, but the top 1% of the top 1% of the top 1%, right? Are, are the people who have the most to gain from demonizing the idea that society should be organized to meet human needs rather than to create profit. Damn. So like when you have people who are in control of the instruments of the dissemination of ideas who have a lot to lose from the idea of, of Marxism or communism, they're certainly going to push the idea that it's some like bad, scary um, as once called the specter haunting Europe or specter haunting right America. Um, there's a so. reason why they do that in their interest.
2: And it also kind of seems like what they're saying, like, let's say these kind of ultra-riches, billionaire types, what they're saying is that when they're saying that Marxism is anti-freedom, what they might be saying is it's anti-our freedom. Like, we don't want limits placed on us, right? We want to sort of manage the media in the way that we have been. We want to be able to make as much money without really considering other people as, as we have been. And so totally. I wonder- yeah, where did How did that sort of, from your understanding, how did that connection happen where sort of in the American mind, Marxism became anti-freedom, where if you're a communist or if you have like, mm-hmm. let's say any, any let's say, you know, kind of dem socialist beliefs, or even, I don't know, you want a stronger safety net here. How did that become associated with, oh, we want to give these people a little bit more money with, oh my God, that means I have no freedom and I'm going to be <laughs> sort of rushed through the gulag too.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a super long history and in a certain sense, like some of that goes all the way back to the first like colonizing settlers that came to North America. But this like, really, I think, um, really swings um, or like ramps up in the 20th century, especially after World War I and the Russian Revolution, um, and even then more after World War II, um, when like the first and second red scares happen, where the United States becomes sort of hysterically paranoid about the idea, oh my goodness, that the underclass could maybe, I don't know, have rights and maybe be entitled to things, crazy things, crazy, crazy things, like an eight hour working day and maybe some breaks and maybe child labor protections, holy goodness, right? Like, and this really starts, the idea that people should be able to organize with their fellow workers in order to demand things like lunch breaks and higher wages really sent um, you know, the ruling class into a, a dizzying tailspin, like a frenzy of anxiety about um, the real power that working people have um, if they band together in order to, to better their condition and take control of a society that should be for them. Um, and then the, like this gets like more and more intense over the course of the 20th century and the Cold War and then the rise of neoliberalism. So like I think that you know there's a really long, r- super interesting story to be told about how, communism became this, this intense demon um, in the United States. But ultimately I think this was always going to be true. Like communism and socialism in a certain sense have to be vilified by the capitalist class in order to maintain its dominance because who in their right mind, right. Would say like, Oh no, I like, right. Like I opt into this system of being exploited by richer people than me. And I, yes, I want to, to die in the street without health insurance or labor protections or anything else. Like it's, it's silly. So you have to like back up the system on the one hand with a threat of incredible violence. And on the other hand, with a, a, a narrative mechanism, right? What Marxists will call I- ideology, a story, a really compelling story that is stuffed down your throat from the time you're re- really, really, really small in order to make the system seem not only that it's fine, but that it's the only system possible, right? Or the only system that can guarantee freedom or something like this. It's obviously crazy.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And something that Alan and I like talk about on the show frequently, you know, how we talk about like tribalism and sort of like how people get into political ideologies. That and the
0: dissemination of knowledge that very uh, technically speaking, it serves the ruling class for us to have these different echo chambers and yeah, that were segmented in different groups of thought and you know uh especially nowadays with people having alternate realities of of the news uh at times not everybody does but of course then you have people then participating in tribalism right uh they'll think no 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 my information is correct your information is wrong i'm right you're wrong all this uh a lot of people won't necessarily unless you're operating from a higher level or order of thinking, you know you're, you're then going to pro- try to integrate all the information that you get. But most people don't do that and it's crazy how that serves the ruling class to keep them in power. Like nobody wants to let go of their of their power. So if this system works for them, they're gonna, as chaotic as it is, let it do what it does but yeah. sorry what were you going to
2: say no yeah so and then what i was thinking was um just a question to ashley so how do you think in terms of um so do you feel like they've sort of co-opted the idea of like you know kind of um i guess the american dream and sort of uh of just patriotism in general to say, okay, here's our team, right? All everybody who lives here is on our team, and we all kind of take care of each other, you know. Maybe kind of like when we're talking about supply side economics, right? But then here are these other sort of foreigners, right? And they're talking about something else, right? So they're sort of feeding you this um, this kind of perception of this ideology that's actually that's actually toxic, right? It's sort of like a Trojan horse. But we are the ones who are protecting you because we're Americans, just like you, and so we want you to be free, right? Just like we're free. So we don't want you to impose on our our freedom, and we're not going to. Pose on your freedom, right? Those people want to take your freedoms away. So do you feel like kind of that image of the American kind of, in this case, I guess, man, but also the American human, right? That's the thing that sort of helps propel them to um, propels their narrative in the sense that helps kind of people, it helps people kind of latch onto it and say, okay, like this is a, these people are a part of our team, right? Even though obviously, how many, how many of us have ever even known millionaires, let alone billionaires?
1: Sure. Yeah. And I, well, I think, a really central part of the American dream is all the so-called, right? Is that like, if you work hard enough, you're going to succeed. Right. And so it's a totally individualistic narrative that like the only thing that is responsible for your success or failure is how hard you work or not. And if you are in poverty or if you don't have health insurance or if you're ill or whatever, that must be your own fault, right? You didn't bootstrap hard enough. Um, And really, like, what this narrative of the American dream does is it allows for the system to say, uh, any one of you who aren't millionaires or billionaires, that's your own damn fault. And I'm totally deserving of my ostentatious wealth. It has nothing to do with the fact that, for example, if I'm the Walton family that owns Walmart, has nothing to do with the fact that a majority of my employees are on food stamps. And that meaning... That the American government subsidizes my ability to pay my workers poverty wages, right? Which is actually the real story of how capitalism works through tax breaks, through super low minimum wages, through loopholes, through all of these things. Is that the you know the the mass of working people in the United States are subsidizing millionaires and billionaires, not the other way around. Um, the other thing to say about the narrative of the American dream is that like. Well, on the one hand, I want to critique it for the way that it is like, um, you know, super individualistic. On the other hand, it also produces this kind of fake collective, right? We are we're Americans that has yeah. always been set up over and against Indigenous people in this country and countries and people from around the world. And so in another sense, like the other way that the American dream works is in a high hyper racist projection of who Americans are and what they should look like and who they should be and that it that then allows us to justify exploitation domination violence and military action against anyone who's not American so on the one hand it like works in order to justify our poverty, and on the other hand works in order to justify um, like massive atrocities against non-white people and non-americans at one and the same time does double duty. And it turns out that the same people, right, who are who are making money from underpaying Walmart workers are the same people who are making bank on defense contracts and munitions and all of those kinds of things, right? Same mm-hmm. class of people.
2: Yeah. And, okay. And you know, interesting, I'm curious. So we had David Livingston Smith on whenever it was, I think about like five, six months ago, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you know, he's a part of a member of the APA. So we talked about like, so he and Kate Mann have a disagreement on whether or not they believe dehumanization is real. And I want to know, what do you think? Do you think that people do actually dehumanize others? Or do you think that there's some other mechanism going on?
1: I'm always really like, I always want to know what people mean by dehumanization. Like mm-hmm. if we mean something, do people use narratives and tropes in order to treat people as less than human? Like the answer is obviously yes, right? Mm -hmm. Like totally, people do this all the time. Um, I don't think that's really, you know, a debatable question. On the other hand, like I'm also often worried about the human exceptionalism that's built into worries about dehumanization because Mm -hmm. if we weren't so interested in devaluing non-human life, like the planet we live on, Um, then dehumanization I think would be much less of a like, we'd be less interested or less freaking out about dehumanization if we were actively valuing other parts of, of the world as well.
2: Yeah. And, yeah. if you sort of, and if you sort of think about it, just the concept of dehumanization, it's kind of interesting that we actually can do this to any kind of life form, even though I, I'm not, look, I'm not exempt from this. I do this all the time too. I mean, it's sort of a shitty part of my own sort of psyche and being, but to me, it's kind of interesting that not only, okay, so we're saying that, let's say dehumanization is wrong. Most people would agree on that, but then we kind of like devalue like insects. We devalue like maybe other types of animals. That's so interesting that we kind of do that because if you think about it, I mean, life in general is life. I mean, how do you really even differentiate between which life is worth it and which isn't and then once you start differentiating like how do you not just build up and say well i mean maybe even these people aren't worth it like who's to really say totally i
1: mean the, the the idea of like what constitutes a human also just like in philosophy but also like in western culture has always been a deep racist projection right there's like never been a point in american or western culture really embraced the idea that anyone, like, that any being of this species is really, fully, truly human in the same way as all others, right? Those, like, all men are created equal stuff. Actually, when you look down, like, when you investigate what practices have been socially associated with humanization, this was always a racial and gender differentiated category, Meaning like what, what is often baked into or assumed to be part of this concept of human or humanity has a really worrying history, right? That's like really stealing racist and sexist beliefs.
2: Yeah. yeah. And I mean, and just going back to another guest about Brian Van Norden, this reminds me of that episode, where, and even Dag Herbjans, right? We talk about kind of like how sort of philosophy has been whitewashed. And so, I mean, this is actually a good segue to this question. So do you feel like um, in terms of being a public philosophy editor, right, which you obviously are at the APA blog, do you feel like one of sort of your goals is to kind of help, let's see what the word is, to sort of help people understand how philosophy was whitewashed and in particular how for I guess centuries at this point it was sort of used as a field not only to necessarily just maintain power or to to maintain power for that particular class of people but it was also used as a field to kind of um, to sort of negate and kind of silence people who probably would have been as great and were even as great of philosophers as these other people who kind of ran academia.
1: Totally. I mean so like On the one hand, I think something that really interests me about public philosophy is finding philosophy or like elevating or um, having people see and recognize that philosophy is happening outside of spaces that institutional philosophy designates to be like true philosophy. Because that's always been happening, right? And like philosophers have always said, oh, no, the real philosophy is a bunch of us like educated rich white men reading other dead educated rich white men and that's that's the only thing that philosophy can ever be um and obviously people have been doing philosophy asking like interesting questions and coming up with interesting theories outside of that really small context for thousands and thousands and thousands of years um and so i'm quite interested in the way that public philosophy looks to, looks outside of the academy, looks outside of this like super white, dead white man canon in order to find philosophical insight. Um, And I'm also interested in pieces and and discussions of the history of the canonization of philosophy and like why philosophy took, you know, disciplinary institutional philosophy took that route, right? So I think that's also I'll say just as someone with a PhD in philosophy, a really understudied part of the discipline's own history. So you can get a PhD in philosophy in the United States and never take a class, for example, on feminism, on philosophy of race, on any non-white or European scholar um, without any consideration of the history of the discipline as discipline. You can take classes on John Locke and never know, at the PhD level, you could take classes on John Locke and not know that he wrote the constitution for the state of South Carolina Mm -hmm. that allowed slave masters, quote, absolute dominion, including the life of right and death over their human enslaved property, right? Mm -hmm. So like, I think philosophy really has a lot of reckoning to do, not just with its own insularity, but also like the history of the fuller history and the fuller context of what the people who are already inside that insular canon, like what else they have done and what they have contributed to. I think there's a real reckoning um, that philosophy is quite late to. I think a lot of other disciplines in, in academic thought have reckoned with this or like come face to face with it a bit sooner than philosophy does. And I think the idea, there's still this like really entrenched idea that what you do as a philosopher is like abstract from the world. You're like this disembodied brain in a vat that is making cool thoughts, right? That actually your body is a distraction thanks <laughs> take part, right? Um, and I think that that is has really held back, um, held back the reckoning with a lot of these questions. So absolutely part of what I'm trying to do with the APA, part of what I try to do when I set up my classes with my undergrads, with my graduate students um, is really to approach philosophy in this more um, holistic way with wider vision that critically evaluates the canon as we have it and also looks outside of it for other other avenues and other ways of, of doing philosophy. Sure. Yeah.
2: I love that and I feel like that's that's pretty just so similar but well your sort of understanding of public philosophy is very similar to what we do too and obviously to what a lot of our guests do as well a lot of what we talked about is um, like so a lot of what we talk about just in general is practical so we talk about sort of practical tools and practical ideas it's not so important for us to find general truths because I honestly I, I, can't, I don't even know how to do that right I'm not I'm not that smart so our thinking is essentially like, how do we kind of help people kind of use these ideas to essentially lead like healthier and better lives? And, you know, how do they find sort of some joy or some semblance of it in the world?
0: Yeah, there's that. And even if we're not the ones to disseminate that knowledge, we'll have, you know, someone like you come on who's actually an expert, you know, and be able to relate this to people as yeah. well. doesn't have to stay in these spaces, right? These institute institutionalized spaces, you know, for the elite, right?
2: Yeah. And, you know, it's funny. I remember once uh, a friend of mine and I, we went to this public, it was, I think it was a public lecture. We went to this public lecture in NYU and it was about um, something, I think it was about like a perception of color or something like that. And so what it was, it was these three philosophers. So I don't remember their names, but they were brilliant in the field and sort of highly regarded. And I think we stayed for the, uh, for, uh, for the lecture for about, I think it was 10 to 15 minutes. And then we just, we couldn't sit through it anymore. Why? So it was so useless, man. So, first of all, not only did they not actually speak. So, what they did was one person read from one research paper, then the next person read their own response from their own research paper, and then the third person contradicted the first two people. So we just were like, wait, we don't understand. Like, how is this useful? What like you I think it's great. Look, the work is brilliant. Let me just say that. The work that they were were doing was just highly intellectual, even beyond me. I couldn't, I was like, I, I don't understand what they're even talking about. But the one the question there was, okay, so it's great that you guys are the smart. And it's wonderful that, you know, you can even open this up to the public and we could talk about perception, what that looks like based on neuroscience and you know what the brain imaging scans show. That's great. But we were thinking, what, like, how does this help people? Like in terms of like, you know, the sort of pro- kind of proverbial how to live a good life, you know, I notion, how does this help people? Like, what does somebody take away from this and go out into the world saying, okay, you know what? I am like much better for having gone to this lecture than I was obviously if I had not, or even before.
0: Well, let me just be devil's advocate for a second. Were they saying that neurologically speaking, that people, you know, people of different color are similar, genetically similar? No, they were just saying that essentially
2: the argument from my vague memory of it was that um, we all of us view color differently in the brain. And so it's like one person may view color like with a tiny difference of a shade. And then the other person will view it with another sort of shade, which is cool. I mean, it's nice. Like it's fun information. But I guess my question in all of this is like, to what end, right? So what is philosophy for? And then Ashley, going into your activism, right? I guess, when did you discover that philosophy was supposed to have a purpose? Like, you know, when when was it that you figured out that, okay, if I'm going to do this, let's say, you know, I'm going to devote X amount of years of my life to this doctorate, that this has to be for something, that I need to do something with it to help better the world? Yeah,
1: uh, I don't know. I think it was kind of a process. Um, You know, I decided to go get a PhD in philosophy after taking a really impactful course um, on the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory. And really, in particular, I was reading in that class Adorno and Horkheimer's Dialectic of Enlightenment. And they have a really, um, really beautiful essay chapter. It's like kind of a wild text. It doesn't really feel finished, but like um, on the culture industry. And it was a you know, a really deep reflection on how culture is produced in line with power, right? And how like power is responsible for so much of the culture that we receive, you know, obviously not on the internet, because this was written a long time ago, but, you know, television, music, movies, um, again, this was also before television, but, you know, like all of the ways that we receive culture um, are not just like pure works of artistic prowess. They're deeply, embedded in trying to produce and reinforce narrative about the world and it's that some people deserve poverty and others deserve luxury and that really impacted i had never really thought that there was a you know reason or a logic or you know like ulterior motives behind um, you know like whatever weird television show is watching on a tuesday night and That really like sort of shook shook my world. And I was like, okay, well, I should like investigate this a bit more, not really necessarily knowing if I wanted to be a professional philosopher, whatever that meant. Though it did seem at the time quite romantic. I promise it is much less romantic than it sounds. (laughs) Like you think like at the time, you know, I was like 19 and I was like, Oh, it must just be like you read books all day and have like you know, amazing, impressive, like world-changing thoughts. And I promise anyone who is listening that is like not what my life is like <laughs> at all. That's like not what our lives are like. Yeah. Um, it's mostly a lot of emails. But,
2: uh, <laughs> yeah. <you>
1: know, <laughs> a lot <laughs> yeah. of emails. Really, really, really little amount of thinking, really big, deep thoughts. Um, uh, and so, like, I, you know, I, I went into um, – my PhD, really thinking that I was going to study aesthetics, philosophy of art and architecture in particular. Um, and then while I was in graduate school, really early on, Occupy Wall Street happened. Um, I was in Chicago at the time. That's right. I was getting my PhD. And I was really like shifted and changed by being a part of the Occupy movement. Um, i had always done political stuff, but I had done it more in the context of like, formally established nonprofit institutions with like federal tax ID numbers and like large donors. And in this very like professionalized setting, you know, I I went to undergrad in DC, I interned at a lot of big political nonprofits. Uh, And this really was the first time that I thought uh, that I saw and experienced politics happening in a different way. That was like about how we can instantiate the future we want now it's sometimes called prefigurative politics and really that like it's a little cliche to say I think especially for people of my generation who were involved with Occupy but like it really changed the course of of my life Um, and I started really thinking about and reflecting on philosophical questions in light of what I was learning in the streets at Occupy like what kinds of questions were becoming really important how we were reckoning with Um, confronting power, but also confronting the ways that living in a capitalist, racist, patriarchal, ableist society had even, despite my own good intentions, like left its imprint on me. And how do you reckon with that at the same time that you reckon with like the structures out there in the world? Like how do you change the world and change yourself at the same time? Mm -hmm. And really like from there, all of my interest in philosophy really Changed and got reoriented toward trying to address those questions.
0: And in that firsthand experience with uh, reckoning reckoning with power, is it that you um, you all sort of learned how to deal with? I mean, this is a little too obvious. I'm sure you mean other ways as well. But uh, in let's say dealing with police, let's say for you know you have a mass gathering of people, and you kind of see how you could sort of uh, combine you know protest and getting the message out, but without necessarily being too much of um how do I put this like I don't know without getting them to do anything to you I I don't know how to verbalize that I will say
1: you don't have to do you don't have to provoke cops to beat the crap out of you they I can say from firsthand experience beat the crap out of you anytime they think they can get away with it Mm -hmm. I've been beaten in the face with police batons I've been thrown on the ground I've had clothes torn off my body by uniformed agents of the state like I I just like want to make especially in the context of This summer's protests, like the idea that it is protesters who provoke police into violent response is bunk. That is one of the narratives that like corporate media wants people to believe. Like, and all you have to do in order to see that is to like look who shows up to a protest with weapons. Mm -hmm. It is always the cops. The cops are the ones who show up looking for a riot, the cops are the ones who show up to create a riot, the cops are the ones that beat the crap out of us every single time. So like I'm always (laughs) really like I'm always quite sharp and critical of this, you know, sort of exhortation, like just protest peacefully, just protest peacefully. You know how many times I've been sitting in the street singing a song, protesting peacefully to then get like physically beaten up by huge people in body armor with sound cannons, tear gas grenades, batons and guns? A lot. Like this is what, the, and, and and the thing about it is like, this is what police are intended to do. They are intended to protect private property and they are intended in order to break resistance. This right. is their whole job.
0: And it's important to know, right? I mean, I, I definitely what you just, I had no clue. I mean, I had some idea that things are happening that obviously are not being reported on the, on the news, but you know, to, speak to somebody who firsthand actually went to a protest. And as you're saying, you're, you're just singing, you, you're just, you know, protesting in peace and then they just go to bother you anyway. And then the way it's sort of reported in the media is uh, spun, right. Mm. That's, that's really eye-opening. That's, that's something that's uh, very critical and important to know, right. You would never know if you're somebody on the side and it's like, Oh, okay. Let's, you know, Oh, these people are going to protest. Well, I, I would never protest. I don't want to cause trouble or i don't want to do this so i'm going to be one of those people who stays home yeah. but then you actually don't know if you live the life of somebody who tried to protest it's a radically different experience That's, yeah.
2: and you would never believe it either so unless like you know there it. was some right there was somebody to share the story you would never think that you'd be like wait that doesn't make any sense if you're just sitting and singing why in the world would they attack you they're, they're reasonable people it's sort of like that economic theory of well you know the reason, going back to capitalism, the reason why capitalism works is because we're all rational actors and we all go off into the world and we want what's best for everybody, yada, 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 even though obviously that's not true. So, but the idea there is that like, why Why that doesn't make any sense? Like you have, let's say, you know, people who probably weigh maybe sometimes even over a hundred pounds less, you know, than these people who are heavily armored. Why in the world would they need to attack them? They're not in any danger. That doesn't make any sense. But then yeah, when you hear these firsthand accounts and even obviously now with kind of the social media age and you know, kind of modern technology, you see this all captured on video people are like holy shit i can't believe that this is happening there was remember that video of um that nypd truck that ended up like driving into that group of protests yeah. and if you never saw that nobody would have ever believed that something like that happened they would have been like well that doesn't make any sense why why would why would they do that well the, they weren't in any danger no one was trying to harm them so it's like unless somebody actually shows it for the other person to go oh wow man some of these people really are irrational and do things that like really sort of what we're talking about the level of danger in relation to the response just doesn't make any sense, then it makes people go, oh, wow, now I got
1: it. Mm-hmm. But I want to resist the, this idea that what police are doing when they beat up protesters is irrational. Mm-hmm. It's only irrational if you buy into the idea that the reason police are there is to quote protect and serve, right. right? If you believe that the function of police is the maintenance of like a just and liberated society, then it seems totally irrational for them to beat the crap out of us and well, to harass. Black and brown people, you know, and to commit sexual assault and domestic violence at, you know, rates that are like, you know, four or five, 10 times the national average. But if you understand really that the role that police play in capitalist society is as the physical force of domination to keep people in their place, all of a sudden it becomes a lot less irrational for them to play that out. And so part of, what, like, I, part of what I think political philosophy has really unlocked for me is the ability to see, actually, when police beat me in the face of the baton, when they shoot an unarmed black teenager 17 times in the back, like they did to Laquan McDonald, when they harass Latinx people on the pre- presumption that they are in the country illegally, when they stop and strip search black women on the side of the highway, right? Like when they do all of these horribly brute, like brutal things, something changes when you see that part of their function, part of their role is to create fear, terror, and therefore compliance, right? Yep. And that's a really different way to understand what it is police are doing in our society than they're irrational people who are somehow like, you know, engaging in individualistic, sadistic fantasies, which maybe they are also. But really the reason why this is so widespread, the reason this is a structural issue that can't be reformed by like implicit bias training or like jailing a few killer cops or whatever is because the whole function that police have in our society, whether or not they're individually like nice people to their neighbors and their kids or whatever, is like their function as police, like quay police is compliance and compulsion Mm -hmm.
0: that's nuts to think that even implicit that's interesting that you mentioned implicit bias training because you would think um i mean ideally you would think you'd tell people what sort of you explain the dynamics of a situation of a particular social interaction especially when things get heated or how to sort of interpret um the other right and Mm -hmm. how you can have these misconceptions about how you interpret them and all that you would think that that would be uh useful to train the police on but you're what you're saying essentially is this is an institutionalized sort of uh system of control like it's bigger than these uh individualistic um concerns that each particular uh police officer has Uh, totally That's, that's interesting.
2: Totally.
1: And so like implicit bias training can be helpful at transforming individuals for sure. Like it can it can be useful, but ultimately when your job, right. And like many police's job, it's like go around and harass black and brown youth. So what, however much implicit bias or sensitivity training you have, if your commander still sends you into a predominantly black and brown neighborhood to harass and round up teenagers, like no amount of implicit bias training is gonna change what you do in your day-to-day. And so I'm not against implicit bias training. I'm not against, and and like, you know, stepping away from police. Like we all have implicit biases, understanding them, reckoning with them, trying to overcome them, engaging them critically is great, is a great thing to do. But I think my work is more interested in like, why do we have these implicit biases, right? Like what are the structures that cause bias and what kinds of large social transformations would be necessary in order to uproot the, these underlying systems from our social reality? And for me, that has to do with like the abolition of capitalism, the abolition of cops, the you know overcoming of private property, and the installation of like a feminist, racial justice sort of society. None of which we're in any way doing at the current moment.
0: No, of course. Uh, I mean, uh, cops, for instance, I mean, right, like like you said, even if somebody had implicit bias training, uh, they're still just following orders, right, or th- that they have too much social pressure from their uh, group or from their
2: commanding officer, whatever. Um, or there might be like a dual mind for like the way I'm thinking about it, because if we're saying that okay, so let's say there's some exterior force that's saying, well, you know, this department or even let's say the series of departments they have to go through these training courses. But then on the other hand, the foundation is, well, it's actually us against the world. You know, people hate us. We're there to do our jobs. Nobody cares what happens to us. Yada yada. The idea is that we only have to look out for each other. But then some external source is saying, well, you actually need this training. They're like, yeah, sure, we'll do the training. That's fine. You know, you, yeah, you give us whatever you want. We'll, we'll, we'll complete your courses, now leave us alone. So the idea is it's like these two sort of dichotomous belief systems that are kind of crashing up against each other. So, okay, so,
0: so all right. So we need to make bigger societal changes, structural changes, right? Um, what, what would we potentially do instead of uh, police? Yep. Like, uh, or how could that be done differently, I suppose? Because, I mean, there may be a need to, I mean, I would say, if you know, if you have an emergency, you, you yeah, would we still like need something
2: to come, right to protect to, people yeah. to
0: come help, I suppose. Uh, I just wonder what that would look like if it's not the police that we're used to. Yeah.
1: I mean, so the idea of there being something like a social system of help sounds great to me. <laughs> I just don't think that armed agents of the state are people who are a intending to help us or b who are most effective at helping us. So like. For example, when someone's having a mental health crisis, if you call a cop. They're likely to incarcerate that person, put them in a physical cage. They might use um, medical, like um, they might uh, um, use medical restraints, um, like um, injections of some kind. They might use physical restraints, like choke or sit- sitting on someone's neck none of that seems to respond to the problem, which is there is a person who is experiencing a mental health crisis without adequate care and support. So my question is like, well, how do we make sure that people who are experiencing mental health crises have adequate care and support? Right. And to me, that has nothing to do with cops. The same thing is true with by and large with theft, right? Like someone gets called because they've stolen whatever it is. And you're like, cool. Why is it that Um, in some places you have to rely on theft in order to feed your family. The problem to me is not solved by, ah, then throw this parent in jail for shoplifting baby formula because that's going to keep all of us safe. You're like, no, why are there kids running around without fucking baby formula? That's the problem. That's the violence. And I think if we solve the violence, right, like that is already being done to us all, to our communities constantly on a day-to-day basis, I think you would find that a lot of the, A lot of these problems that seem to be solved by cops are already solved on their own. Like if we were actually worried about solving poverty and houselessness and domestic violence and like all kinds of other problems that we rely on, you know, like that we rely on guns to fix now, we could actually like help, like actually help and solve problems and not need cops. I just like, I just... I've sense. never seen a situation in which a cop has helped. I just don't believe it.
2: I mean, I'm sure there had to have been some.
1: <laughs> I don't believe it.
2: Yeah. Well, and so what? Even
0: so, no, you're, but I, I get your point though. you're saying, like, for example, uh, instead of we know that there's going to be some domestic violence, so we need cops to uh, solve that, you're saying let's attack the root of the cause of what's creating domestic, for example. Or especially
1: especially related. just like like it's interesting that you, like a lot of people use the, the case of domestic violence when they're like you know trying to trying to be like no we can't do abolition because domestic violence right right and like on the one hand do you know who is statistically the most likely group of people to abuse a partner cops yes. mm-hmm. like first off i don't know why we're like relying on them to be the savior of of uh, people experiencing domestic violence when they're more likely than anyone to be the perpetrators of domestic violence in the first place. Second of all, when a person is experiencing domestic violence or intimate partner violence, like they don't need to be interrogated. They don't need to potentially be arrested on mandatory arrest laws. They don't need to to have their children often taken away from them for the failure to stop the domestic violence, all of this is what happens when the carceral system gets involved in the prosecution or solving of domestic violence. That's often not what we need. Often what we need is something like food, safe housing, therapy, economic independence, like real help for problems that people are experiencing that then come out as domestic violence. We need to like undo toxic masculinity that often sort of suggests that the way to deal with problems is through physical violence. Like none of those things, right? None of the things that might actually uh, like help a person who's experiencing domestic violence or prevent domestic violence in the first place to me are solved by, you know, like armed people doing more violence on people by putting them in cages, perpetuated by people most likely to do domestic violence. Like none mm-hmm. of that makes any sense to me. And it only makes sense, right? So like when you look at a system that makes so little rational sense like that, right? You have like domestic, uh, uh, domestic abusers themselves getting guns by the state to come into someone else's house to throw people in a cage that we know, we, all, we, we know like itself perpetuates further violence. That system doesn't make sense if you think, right, that the goal of cops is to solve violence. That, like those, that narrative cannot be squared. So yeah. the only, the only um, thing that could possibly make sense is like that is not actually their job. Their job is not to solve domestic violence. Their, their, their job is not to stop violence at all. Their job is to do something totally else. And it, that other thing, right, at creating compliance, fear, terror at like being the armed agent of the state, they're doing a great job, right? They are fulfilling their job. It is just not the job that they tell people is their job. It's not the job that the media says is their job, right? But otherwise the system makes no sense.
2: Yeah. And so uh, what would you do, like, let's say in this transition period, right, between, let's say when, let's say if we're talking about big societal structural changes, and we're saying, okay, you know, we need to sort of, um, again, develop kind of going back to the safety net, develop a stronger safety net for people, um, give them more opportunities, let's say for for work, give them more opportunities for education, right? But then, I mean, obviously, as I'm sure everybody agrees that it's not going to happen overnight. Um, And then so what do we do in the meantime, while there is still violence? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think we fund and support community responses to the problems that communities are facing. Mm-hmm. So, like, just I mean, this to, to leave aside the police problem for just a minute, but like, it has taken right like a full nine months for the US government to give us like what was it, $600 that we're getting as like you a COVID relief, like something ridiculous. Yeah. How much could rent possibly cost for eight months? $600? Mm-hmm. You guys live in New York, right? Yeah. Like, yeah,
2: not on the different. other
1: hand right like like complete incompetence like total ridiculousness yeah. on the other hand if you look at the wide network of mutual aid support that has sprung up in this pandemic neighbors feeding neighbors neighbors clothing neighbors neighbors running around doing grocery shopping for elderly and immunocompromised neighbors people redistributing their own stimulus um, their first stimulus payments that were only sort of real, right? Like toward incarcerated and undocumented people who would not be getting um, stimulus payments. Like th- all of that combined mutual aid network, which like had no direction, no funding, no institutional support, right? Has been so much more effective at helping your average person than, than Congress. And so like, I, I think Sometimes when we think about these large scale transformations, we go into the imaginative space, like how could we imagine, right, like doing these other things? And I think there's something that's useful about that. On the other hand, I want to say, like, can we look at the things people are already doing? People are making Herculean efforts to fill gaps that our society leaves open and they are they're doing it in ways that are so much more effective than the capitalist institutions of power that we are told to rely on. And I think when we look at all of the, the, you know, neighborhood, um, and community, like protection zones, um, the, like the, um, sort of like underground railroad, uh, of women who needed abortions before Roe, like there are so many projects in the history of the United States, the underground, underground railroad itself, right. That we could point at and see. Human beings who have looked at needs that existed in their communities and their societies and have stepped in to fill them in ways that were a thousand percent more effective than the structures of power because the structures of power are not there to solve our problems, they are there to further recreate them. So, so I like, I understand the question, like, what do we do in the meantime? And I think what we do in the meantime is like, what people are already doing. We highlight that, we expand, we replicate, we like give due credit to people who are already doing it. We like ask for help and mutual understanding about like how they have done that. How can I adapt that to my local context which might be slightly different. Like I think all of the tools and skills are there. And obviously we like you know seize all the yachts and auction them off and pay for all the things we need.
2: that actually makes me think a huge
1: part of it too you know like we seize the hotels and we turn them into housing for houseless people like we we just take at a certain point right people realize that they need to take the things they need Mm -hmm.
2: Mm. yeah and that makes me think of since obviously we're in new york that makes me think of the guardian angels did you do you know anything about them
0: the motorcycle
2: guys? They're not. No, you're thinking of the motorcycle Hells game? Angels. Oh, Hell's no, no. Angels. Yeah, so I'm sure, Ashley, you probably know we have the Guardian Angels here. I don't know if they're still active or maybe they are. But yeah, so like when the mob was for the mafia here was uh, pretty active, like in the 70s and 80s, they realized that there was this kind of gaping hole in the NYPD that they weren't really actually doing that much. Mm-hmm. So this group of guys, I forgot the founder's name. He was this really cool guy. Um, so they decided, you know what, we're going to be kind of vigilantes and we're going to protect the streets ourselves. And they would really go up and down right around trains. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they would really just protect communities. And like um, I forgot who the he- damn. I wish I remember just day. But yeah, he was like like John Gotti made him like his number one enemy. Like he actually actually had a contract down on him because he hated him that much. And so yeah, and they didn't hate the NYPD anywhere near as much as they hated the Guardian Angels. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah, there's a, yeah, there's a good example of your point. <laughs> yeah, Dean yeah. yeah.
1: Spade has a good new book called Mutual Aid that is about a lot of these projects. Mutual Aid is great. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Mm. Were you gonna say something?
0: No, I mean, I, I would I would like to um, see what other people are doing that's working and also be able to replicate and reproduce that right. as well, right? I mean, that that's incredibly important. I wouldn't even know. I mean, I'm sure I've browsed on the internet before, you know, somewhere on my newsfeed, let's say Facebook or some social media. I've seen articles related to sort like, of like, uh, community programs. But I'm really, uh, like, Ashley, do you know maybe like, if, if you do, like maybe somewhere you could point us to, maybe see examples of, um, I suppose, not community policing, but like sort, sort of like the community helping each other and maybe some programs that they're doing.
1: Yeah, there are a lot of really, really, really good resources on the abolition of police and abolition in general. Um, lots of really amazing books. I can super highlight um, Angela Davis's work um, on this question. Um, I think also, um, you know, like Dean Spade has really interesting work on on um, mutual aid. And so I think like, if you're interested in like there, like I could give like, like a whole reading list about like, you know, like theories and histories of attempts at police abolition, at like alternatives to, to policing at, that have gone like better, you know, better and worse. Um, but honestly like the thing that i would say rather than i mean do all the reading the reading is great 10 out of 10 love the reading P- <laughs> professional reader i love it right but i think also like in a certain sense like the something that i learned a lot from doing activism is that like there's still a gap right between the most raddest baddest social theory like you know like liber- liberationist theory and the feeling of being there in person and doing it and watching it unfold in practice and like watching human beings take risks for each other and show up to defend each other and like hold raise the rent parties and like lock arms in front of of a family who's about to get evicted like all of those things are real experiences and real people do them all the time and so like really what I would say to people that are watching is like read the theory if you want but really like find what is happening in your community and go there and support them show up to an eviction defense. Like the eviction moratorium is going to expire on January 31st. And by some estimates, almost a third of people in the United States are facing housing insecurity at the uh, expiration of that eviction moratorium. There are going to be eviction defenses. There are going to be community, you know, organized efforts to keep people in safe housing. And you should go to them. And if there isn't one in your community, you should organize one, right? Like this is what we need. Like we need to protect ourselves and our communities from the state, from capital, from the banks and the landlords, right? And like find what is happening in your community. Maybe it's a rent strike. Maybe it's an eviction defense. Maybe it's a food, not bombs. Maybe it's, you know, um, a COVID mutual aid society. Maybe it's like an arts collective that is like, raising money for school supplies uh in underfunded schools like there's there are so many projects happening literally everywhere and I honestly believe that if you like there is abolition work happening everywhere there is activist work happening everywhere and I think rather than like hold fast to like one specific model of what it should look like I always think that the strongest and best work that we can be doing is work that comes out of the immediate needs of our community. So I don't know exactly, you know, like I don't know where people no. are, are listening from, but that's what I would say.
0: No, I hear you. Yeah, instead of uh, being a spectator, right? Being in reaction to everything that's going on in your community, thinking, okay, whoever's protesting, they're the protest people. Like I'm the person, you know, I don't get involved in that. It's a wrong way to think right it, it, the idea is don't spectate take take action you see a problem that needs addressing in your community don't just sit there really try to go help and in that helping yeah you can have as many ideas as you want right and like like you said the baddest radical theories right but at the same time it's like the, the it's so cliche but the proof is in the pudding right like you have to take action and it's in action that you'll experience you'll learn more about activism in action than you will from well i don't want to say more than from reading i think both are important but and one reinforces
2: yeah. the other. I mean, you need the experience and the evidence, right, to support your ideas.
0: I just don't like to say black and white, things, <laughs> but in general, action is important. Is yeah. what I'm.
2: And speaking at. Yeah. of black and white thinking, because I know this is going to be black and white, but it's still prominent. So, Ashley, how do you think that? Where did the divide between acad- academia and activism? Where did it come from, and how did it happen? Because it's so stark now, like pretty much you could kind of see it like with kind of the Steven Pinkers of the world and, you know, whomever else, right? They kind of like really disdain activists and like activists on the other end. I mean, I don't know what they necessarily think of academics, but it does seem like there's this big divide between the two.
1: I mean, yeah, I don't know like, like where this happened initially. Um, I could only speculate about that. Mm-hmm. My guess is that like, if I had to, to hazard a guess, um, I would say that it's because Right, activists tend to come from the disenfranchised and disempowered, right? They're the ones with a lot to to gain by changing up the system and academics, right? Because academia requires a lot of expensive schooling, right? Tends to come from the class most interested in maintaining the current power structure, right? So um, there are exceptions, right? On both sides, there are working class academics, there are academics who go to protests and throw down like it's not black and white. But like, I think in general, right. um, Because of the way we do education in this country which is like an abomination, right. Like academics tend to come from highly, highly, highly privileged backgrounds with like independent wealth or at a minimum, right. Like an upper middle-class structure of family support to fall back on or spouses who make more money than they do or whatever, right. Like it's not easy to do what I did, which is to be a self-sustained academic um, all through graduate school, sucks. Um, And so I think there's like often a gap in experience and a gap in like where people are coming from. I also think that academia is really self-referential. Like academics often only talk about ideas to other academics they often use language that is really hard to understand if you're not initiated, right? Into the chosen few of the doctor club, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there's a lot of also animosity, right? That academics have created by, I don't know, hoard- hoarding or hoarding resources, hoarding knowledge, hoarding research. Putting all their research behind academic paywalls. Like, who's going to pay $40 to read your article? You know what?
2: Yeah, yeah. That I never understood. Yeah, crazy stuff. Yeah, you know, but have you seen that? Like, academic articles are literally like $40 a pop. You know, it'd be cool
0: yeah. if they had that idea that if it just was really popular enough, you offered it for free mm-hmm. and then you could sell ads on it. <laughs> but nobody, that's, it. Yeah, that's- or maybe somebody thought of it, they haven't executed.
2: It. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I'm assuming that's kind of your point in public philosophy, right, to sort of the idea of something that we talked about before, right, we, we talk about it all the time, is sort of making it more mainstream, because these topics and like the conclusions of, you know, kind of philosophers of form, and even from psychology, too, obviously, like these are important for everybody to know.
1: Totally. And like, look, I'm, I'm you know, I'm. I, it's kind of easy to hate on academics and jargon and whatever. Like, Sometimes speaking in jargon is helpful because it's technical shorthand, right? right? And sometimes when you're speaking to other specialists, technical shorthand allows you to say things a bit faster, right? And that's, that can be helpful inside a certain context. The right. thing that I'm critical of when that's the only context we train people to care about and the only vernacular they are able to use. Right. Um, so I'm not saying like no one should ever, you know, like have specialized vocabulary, but I am saying like, how are you then taking the fruits of being able to speak quickly with other specialists and, like, transform that elsewhere? But also, right, it's like, the other thing that drives me bananas is the idea that only people with PhDs have valuable knowledge, right? That, like, people with PhDs are the ones who make the knowledge. And I'm always like, God, academics, know, especially when we talk about politics and organizing and radical social theory I read all this stuff that comes from people with PhDs and I'm like you know nothing like no. <laughs> like you <laughs> like so. just some of the assumptions that academics make because of the like encasement in the ivory tower is laughable like laughable and it's because they often only think about like regular people, right, with people without PhDs, as their research subjects, right, like, as data to input into a spreadsheet, and I think that's also, like, a real lost opportunity for understanding, exploring, like, how people are understanding, thinking about, reflecting on, changing, and making meaning in the world, like, people are doing that every day all the time, you don't need a fucking PhD to do that, like, everyone is doing that all the time, and people who don't have PhDs are like a huge wealth of knowledge and experience and advice, inspiration and dreams and like all kinds of other things that I think like those of us who are paid to read books and write them are really really missing out on deepening our research like and being better thinkers by being so enclosed in, in talking to other kind of knowledge technocrats which is I think the the you know the kind of direction that academia has been on since since
2: the 80s, which yeah. sucks. And it's such a shame that it's so threatening for a lot of them. It's like if sort of if we put our knowledge or if we make our knowledge more accessible and more people know about it, then what's the point of us even being here? What what sort of role do we have?
0: Well, the thing is they, they give each other status, yeah. right? So once you have this particular degree, you have uh, gone to this particular school, you have written this many books, or you've written a book about this particular subject, then you become recognized by your peers and you get a sense of status. I suppose, um, yeah, I suppose many academics might, I don't want to paint, you know, uh, broad strokes here, but yeah, I'm sure that, yeah, they would think of regular folk as like not being able to contribute as much value as, as they can. I mean, granted, from reading a lot from doing a lot of research, you are definitely gearing your brain towards, you know, memorizing a whole bunch of information, things will come to you quickly, like, uh, almost intuitively, because you've studied it so much. So you, you know, you do get something from all those hours of study, but
1: only a certain kind of knowledge, right? It's like, like, I think academics love to overemphasize like how much they gain from how much they've studied, which is true, like we gain a lot of facility with like language and ideas and, and techniques, right? Of doing them over and over again, but also like they like to underemphasize what kinds of doors are being closed, right? By doing this, like, like leaning into the same way of producing knowledge over and over again. So yes, we're gaining a lot of expertise in something incredibly, incredibly narrow, And they don't, and like academics in general don't like to say like, oh yes, like in this super, super narrow thing that has often meant that we have been closing, right, avenues toward exploring the same question in a variety of other ways, right? Or that could be enriched or complemented or expanded or changed, right? Or could reveal the limits of this super narrow thing that I'm doing if I were talking to other people and not just other academics. I don't mean that like philosophers could benefit from talking to neuroscientists and sociologists, though that is also true. But I think there's something overall about academic specializations and the presumption about what constitutes knowledge and how, how knowledge sounds and what it looks like and the form in which it is produced and distributed, right? that is already closing off so much, you know?
0: Yeah. So what's fantastic is it's that idea of gatekeeping, right? It's, it's like like you said, like the gates are, are closed to the outside. What's fascinating is with um, the advent of things like, let's say, podcasts, right? Now you don't necessarily have to be in a particular space to have uh, essential knowledge sort of disseminated to you. You can, you can hear somebody. Also, what's fantastic is when you hear somebody having conversation, it's just, it's not something, it's not like a written script. Like, for example, like you were saying at that particular, at that seminar or wherever right. you went, uh, they're reading <laughs> from their paper, uh, which is fine. Nothing wrong with that. Oh, God, There's a so time boring. and place for that. Fair enough. It's boring. <laughs> it's, so boring. it's, yeah, it sounds oh, terrible. Oh, it sounds boring. God. And but, I do
1: it too, right? I'm not, I'm not like, <laughs> like, I'm like I have done this too. <laughs> so boring.
0: Right, right. And, but what's fantastic is when you, when it's conversational or someone brings, their own personality to the way they sort of get that information out there, it's translated differently. Like, it's weird. It's like, uh, as a kid, whenever I learned anything in school, I kind of associated learning with just sort of this like boring monotone, like explanation to like 30 people in the class or, or whatever it is. But when you actually listen to somebody who's engaged and passionate, it doesn't necessarily have to even have to be passionate, but some sort of Emotional intonation, whatever is them, right, comes out in whatever it is that they're uh, expressing. It sounds a million times more interesting and also something that you could sort of relate to as just a regular person. And that's that's, I think, one way how um, we sort of uh, disrupted these gatekeepers and academics. Right. Um, In fact, uh, they well, I think they've gotten creative as well. I was about to say they need to be creative in terms of getting it up, but they're no, they're they are being. Yeah. by going on all these shows as well
2: and and, all that. and then also I think it's also worth mentioning so just even a message for the gatekeeper so um, my I mean this is something that's kind of even still a little bit hard to talk about but I think it's worth mentioning so my college mentor recently passed away and so like he was quite possibly the best human being I've ever known and he figured it out so everybody that I speak to about him when they ask like oh like what was he like or kind of how did he live I said if I could pick one person who I would say was sort of the epitome of the good life it was him like he figured it out. So his name was Dr. Tim Stroop, and he taught at John Jay College. Um, So for Tim, right, he could have honestly done anything that he wanted, like, pretty much anything. He went to Harvard Law School. He um, graduated from Oxford with a PhD in philosophy. He literally just any, whatever he wanted to, he could have chosen. He was literally a genius. Like this was like legit, objectively a genius. And so for Tim, which was so interesting, um, he actually never took any of that stuff like really seriously. And so most of his life, well, first of all, he knew from like an early age that he wanted to teach at a CUNY system, which was really interesting because, you know, the CUNY system is mostly full of like just, you know, poor working class and middle class kids. Um, You know, these are kids that wouldn't go normally to Harvard. Harvard. Uh, Yeah, some of them do. By the way, so it's not black and white. But a lot of them just—they don't come from wealth, obviously. Not even close to it. And so for Tim, it was really important to sort of give back to that community because for him, he always felt like, even though he didn't necessarily, because he did come from an academic background and you know his parents were kind of like teachers and his dad was a dean, but he felt more connected to their community. And so for him, he realized that the credentials were nowhere near as important as the relationships that he built. So it's so interesting because if you go to John Jay College, there's like this wall. And so on this wall, it's like full of these like tiny plaques. And on the plaques, we would have like people's like teachers' names. And it would say like, you know, such and such earned his doctorate at whatever year, right? So it would say doctor, you know, yada, yada, right? Um, graduated from whatever. So it's like these different professors. But then Tim actually has one too. And so what's so striking about it is how dissimilar it is to the others. So number one, Tim does not have his credentials on it. And it says, for all of my students, past, present, and future, this is for you. And it's a Timothy Stroop. It does not say doctor on it or professor or anything that along those lines. So when I would talk to Tim, you know, I would always ask him, I would say like, how come you don't want to write more? Like he was a phenomenal writer. The pieces that he wrote were just sensational. And he's like, well, it's just, it's not that important to me. What's important to me is like talking to you folks and having friendships with you and sort of like, you know, kind of being able to like teach you and whatever. And so, and I remember at the time when I initially met him, this is just how great of a human he was. So it's not something I'm proud of, but I was. So I was once a libertarian, and I was not only a libertarian; I was also a conspiracy theorist. So when I took t- oh yeah yeah, yeah. The, the whole shebang. So when I took Tim's class, um, so he taught an ethics and law class in John Jay. So when I took Tim's class, I was incredibly combative, combative, and like aggressive. Not whatever. Not you know. Not horribly so, but I was like, oh, I'm going to show this guy up. And so uh, I was sitting in the, top, in the front of the class and we would constantly like kind of go back and forth. And he would make jokes. He would say, oh, well, you know, he's wrong about everything. And I would say, no, he's actually the one who's wrong about everything. And so what was great about Tim was that he, little by little, he would give me these different like books to read. And he said, look, I'm going to get you this book. You don't have to read it. He's like, "Just if you don't want to read it, you don't have to read it. But he's like, if, just, if you're not going to read it, just like let me know and give it back to me. I'll give it to someone else. And I'd be like, no, you know what? I'll give it a chance. I'll, I'll read your stuff. And little by little, and we had a pretty much a friendship that spanned a decade. I got to, he's like, I just want you to see what it's like on the other side. He's like, you don't have to accept any of this stuff, right? But this person, this human, cared so much about my development that for him, it wasn't important whether or not I subscribed to his ideas and his sort of ideology and his theories. And by the way, he was a socialist that he was pretty open about it. And so it wasn't important to him that I subscribed to whatever he believed in. What was important for him was that I had a more nuanced understanding of just like the world around me. And I knew what it was that I was actually arguing. Against. So of course, as I read the literature little by little, I actually then turned to his perspective, and he was like, "Wow, holy shit! Like it actually like it worked, right?" But the reason why it worked was because he cared so deeply about relationships that he wasn't the gatekeeper in the sense that we're talking about, it, right? He wasn't an academic in the sense of like here's here's all of this stuff that I know, and I'm a doctor, and I know more than you, and so sort of you need to treat me as though like you know I'm somehow your superior. It wasn't important to him. What was important to Tim was that people t- took the knowledge and they pretty much thought for themselves. Well, I mean, and the ethics and law class was more about critical thinking than it was about even the information that he was giving. He just wanted people to be able to think for themselves and form their own conclusions. If it happened to have been that you pretty much ended up subscribing to his belief system, great. I mean, he was happy about it. He's like, fantastic. He's like, now you understand why I see things the way I do. But for him, In the way that he sort of, in the way that he kind of lived his last years, was sort of the epitome of what a good, and even just the way he lived his life overall was the epitome of a good life because he learned that people were more important than credentials, and that for him, he never had the need to be superior. So it just, it just wasn't a part of who he was. And again, going back to the gatekeepers, if I wish I could have like a sort of a video or a movie of him, so I could show it to them and say, no, no, look, this is what it means to live a good life. You don't need to be smarter or better or whatever it is than anybody else. This man lived and died a happy individual and that's why mm. yeah wow so that's it that's all i got <laughs> so yeah and it's cool because actually it seems like you figured that out too you kind of figured out that in terms of philosophy you know what's most important is really sort of the work you do with people
1: you know i i try i try and like like all people i sometimes do it better and sometimes fail to instantiate the highest version of my values but like that's that's part of it right
2: Yeah that's yeah, kind of yeah, the growing process or whatever you want to call it i mean it's never yeah that's something like that doesn't really end. Right.
0: yeah no, it, but it's it's perfect because the, then well either way i mean we're, we're not static right we we learn for example if one at one point a message doesn't get across okay then you sort of see you know in, into the goings-on see okay why didn't it come across okay i'll do this this and this next time or whatever right fine
2: but yeah yeah absolutely
1: I learn a lot about that from my students you know like Mm -hmm. like oh this didn't land why didn't this land like oh okay like how you know like it's the thing that I love about teaching is the constant learning process and like I think the idea that professors are in the classroom and they're just like teaching and the students are the one that's doing the learning is like completely backwards (laughs) like anyone who's like really engaged with the relational process of thinking about ideas in the classroom, which is what I'm always trying to do is like, I'm learning as much, if not more than my students are learning all the time. I'm learning from them. I'm learning from our interaction. I'm learning from watching their interactions. Um, And it's like a really beautiful, like transformative process. I hope for all of us, right. That they're learning things. I'm learning things. We're like learning, like, you know, things like data, like we're, we're learning things from texts, but we're also like learning how to talk about ideas in a different way, how to be, I'm learning constantly how to be more accessible and rely less on jargon or to explain things in a different way. They're learning how to sometimes like, they're sometimes learning that jargon. They're sometimes learning how to deconstruct that jargon. They're sometimes learning how to apply philosophical ideas to music videos, right? Like, we're all doing, we're coming from different places, but I hope that like what the classroom part of being an academic is is about, is about like growing and stretching and changing through a process of dialogue, right?
2: Absolutely. And I think that's such a great point to uh, sort of end off point. Perfect. So Alan, final questions before we go, buddy? Yeah.
0: Yeah. If we wanted to follow you, follow your work and uh, read your new book, uh, how could we find
1: Well, you can read my new book. Um, In the US, you can get it at Columbia University Press. In the UK, you can get it at Pluto. And in continental Europe, you can get it at Transcript Verlag. I don't know, a lot of my articles are up on my academia.edu page, which is sort of the best place to follow my work. Mm -hmm. I have a website, that's uh, ashleyjbord.com. You can follow my stuff there. Um, I'm very bad at social media and posting on social media. So I wouldn't try to follow (laughs) me (laughs) there.
2: That's the best, most honest answer I've ever heard. Well, I mean, but definitely, let's say just for social media, we could find you at the APA blog on like all of the social media platforms, right? Yeah, You
1: you could totally read lots of things that I edit at the APA public philosophy blog. I don't write myself um, on it very much, Um, but I definitely edit lots of really cool attempts that my like, colleagues around the country and around the world are trying to do with public philosophy 10 out of 10 recommend reading it it's awesome
2: awesome, <laughs> awesome. thank you so much for coming on thank this you. was so insightful
1: thanks for having me
2: all right Ashley, we'll talk to you soon take care bye, bye. all right what a, cool. what a ride okay.
0: <laughs> all right so guys if you want to follow us follow us at seize the moment podcast on facebook and on instagram and at fa- and at C's underscore podcast on Twitter, mm-hmm. like, subscribe, hit, hit the, the bell. bell on
2: YouTube. And then you can also find us at the OFRL online network at network.com. And we're up top under the STM podcast section.
0: All right, guys. Thank you so much for watching. See you next time.